You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We believe God is going to meet you right where you are today as you listen and dig into His Word. I don't know if you are one of those people that, uh, well, you might call yourself uh, prudent or wise. Uh, someone else might call you a serial stasher or hoarder. Um, or the type of person that when something comes up, you are going to be prepared beyond prepared. Like, you know, when the hurricane threatens to move up the coast and we go by all the water, right? And there's none left. And, and then all that comes through is like a, like a little rainstorm. Um, and then we've just got gallons of water. Or maybe some of you, I could re- rewind a long, long time ago in 1999 when everybody was stockpiling for the end of the world. And some of y'all still have have MREs and canned goods and bottled water from 1999 that you stored up in your bunker uh, that you were preparing for the end of the world. Uh, Or maybe you are one of those people that contributed to our uh, total lack of toilet paper during COVID last year, and you've got so much toilet paper all over your house now, you're just looking for things to wipe down. Pun intended. So we just, we, we, we store things and we stash things and, and yet then we realize that we, we panicked for nothing and we've got all of this stuff that we've got, we don't know what to do with. I had a, a friend years ago that decided that they were going to store up on some foreign currency that was worth about like 0.1 cent. But one day when that went up to like a real cent, he was going to be rich. He's probably using it for toilet paper right now. Because it, it, it didn't change, and, and it was, it's worth nothing. And like a lot of the things that we store up and put our hope in, worth absolutely nothing when it doesn't pan out like we think. This past week I was reading an article about a man named Roman Bloom. I doubt any of you have heard of him. He's not famous, but Mr. Bloom was a Holocaust survivor. He and his wife moved to Queens, New York in 1949. And in that time, Mr. Bloom became a very successful real estate developer. He was intelligent. He was a hard worker. Obviously, he was a heroic survivor of a horrific thing like the Holocaust. Uh, he, He got married. He made a life for himself. And he became very successful at real estate development at that time. For all intents and purposes, he moved here with his wife, had a wife, had a house, actually had two houses. He was living what we would call the proverbial American dream, having it all. Except in 2012, as is the case for all of us, he died at the age of 97. He passed away and he had no existing or living heirs, no will, and no one to leave his amassed $40 million estate to. His body remained in the morgue for over four days while they tried to track down his lawyer so they could figure out what to do next. $40 million, maybe that doesn't seem like a ton of money to you. It seems like a ton of money to me. 
left to absolutely no one. And apparently this is not abnormal as some estimates show that over $60 billion of unclaimed assets come from, coming from a variety of sources are still out there, including abandoned bank accounts, stock holdings that are left unclaimed, unclaimed life insurance policies, and forgotten pension benefits. Mr. Bloom, for all intents and purposes, looked like he had a very successful life. At one point, though, he and his wife ended up getting a divorce. She took one house, he took the other, became known really as a bachelor, cooking out these massive steaks every Sunday afternoon, having people over to his house for a big pool party every Sunday afternoon, kind of became like a well-known bachelor in their tight-knit neighborhood. And yet all that he amassed and all that he had saved was left to no one except the state. Juxtapose Roman Bloom with another man. This man was born in Portland, Oregon, and at a young age, he felt called to missions work. Now, missions work, if you've ever done it or know, is not a, a lucrative or financially wealthy way to live your life, particularly international missions and going into third world countries and places like that. Matter of fact, many people tried to tell this young man, man, you have such a, an amazing future in the church. Why don't you just stay here and become a youth pastor and then one day you could go on and do something else, maybe pastor a church. Why would you want to go somewhere else, particularly where he wanted to go, which was Ecuador? But despite everybody thinking that his dream was foolish, he began evangelizing in Ecuador in 1952 and then moved further into the jungle to reach more unreached people groups. He got married in 1953. He had his first and only child with his wife in 1955. And then in January of 1956, really only four years into this mission that he had been doing and, and believing that God had called him to, this missionary, along with four other companions, made contact with some warriors of the Hanorani people. And while trying to just greet them and extend their hands and welcome them or say hello to them, this missionary, along with his four colleagues, were speared, left for dead, and found killed later on down the river. This man, was some of you may know, his name was Jim Elliot. And Jim Elliot has become well known for a few reasons, but one of them is a, a quote that he made about his life and the way that we are to live. And it's a contrast between the way Roman Bloom lived his life and what he did with his resources and then what Jim decided to do with his life and his resources. It's a difference in a juxtaposition between the wise and the foolish usage of our money and our resources in our lives. A lesson that all of us who are still here have a choice to make daily about living wise lives of generosity or foolish lives of living for ourselves. Jim Elliott said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. The Bible speaks to this very issue and it answers the questions that we're looking at in this series. Where is the wisdom, folly, fanatics, and fools we're taking a look at 
this idea of how do we live wise lives? How do we live with wisdom being our guide? And as we said in in week one last week in James 3, wisdom has the fruit of righteousness that follows. If you want to know whether or not we're making wise choices with our lives, then James says there'll be the fruit of righteousness that comes out of that wise decision or that wise choice. And there's another wisdom that we follow our human wisdom that often leads to strife and anxiety and lack and fear but in Matthew chapter 6 Jesus makes it very clear as to how we should operate in wisdom when it comes to our money verse 19 he says do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal Contextually speaking, the moths and the vermin are just indicative of earthly means for destroying earthly treasures, right? That something you and I value so much could be eaten up by a tiny little bug or could rust away over time by the corrosive elements of life. Something that I valued was priceless to me. He goes on to say in verse 20, But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Even then he's talking about in this context that thieves would just break in. It was easy to break into a house. If it's gone, you're dead, and then they just come and take all of your stuff. But don't do that. Actually store up for treasures for yourselves in heaven. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, the heart represents the core of your being, your genuine self, your inner person, if you will. The heart, Proverbs says, is the wellspring which all of your life comes from. So what we're saying, right, the heart is the causative source of your spiritual, your emotional, your economic, your psychological life. It's all flowing out of your heart. What we value is driven by the nature of our hearts, Do we love Jesus? Is he the king of our hearts? Or is something else determining what we do with our resources and our lives? How we relate to our money, being wise or foolish, is determined by who is the king of our hearts. Do we store up treasures here? Jesus is asking, or do we store up treasures in heaven? Today we want to look at wisdom That's this whole series, right? I want to look at the wisdom of generosity. And what we're going to find, if you'll allow me to paraphrase Jim Elliott's quote, is it is wiser to give what we cannot keep, gaining what we cannot lose. It is wiser to give what I cannot keep, anything that's been given to me, any of my resources that I cannot and will not take with me in order to gain what? The treasures in heaven that God says we can store up that are eternal, that last, that we can never lose. And the scripture says that moth and, and flame and anything else can't steal. This will be determined by which economy we operate in. This will be determined by what wealth we pursue. Much like there are two types of wisdom, earthly wisdom and godly wisdom that we talked about last week, there are two different economies. And these two different economies produce two different kinds of wealth. And one is a wise pursuit that requires wise choices and righteous decisions. And the other is a foolish path. But here, listen to me, this foolish path, because here's the difficulty, looks like you're being blessed and everything is really good that's the problem with the foolish path is on the outside it looks like 
I'm prospering and God is blessing me. So since we're talking about wisdom, let's use some wisdom literature, which is what Proverbs is called. It's meant to help us make wise decisions based on godly information. That's what the wisdom literature like Proverbs is there. It's going to give you wise instruction to make a wise choice in practical everyday living. So let's look at what it says in Proverbs chapter 11. I'll be in Proverbs 11. I've already mentioned Matthew 6, and then I'll mention Luke 11. Those are the three places that I'll go, or Luke 12. But Proverbs 11, verse 24 through 25, one person gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed here we find a kingdom paradox it's a paradox in the kingdom of God and in the economy of God what he's saying is we become wealthy by being generous conversely we become impoverished by storing up treasures on earth what we try to save this is saying we lose but what we give we have and I've said this way a lot over the years. I think I heard it originally from Pastor Craig Rochelle many, many years ago. But it bears repeating. And here is the wisdom of generosity. And I'll repeat this over and again throughout this message this morning. What you keep is all you have. But what you give, God can multiply. What you keep, that's it. You can keep it. And I've got it. But that's all you got. But what you give, the scripture says, God will multiply, can and will. Our minds operate the exact opposite, don't they? It's like we are more on the side of, man, I got to hold on to this. I got to store up for this. I got to be prepared for that rainy day. Well, what if this happens? And what if that happens? And what if we, you know, that unexpected thing creeps up on us? We live more in fear of the unknown than we do in faith of what is known. Who is known? And what he has proven himself to be over and over again. Let me hold on to as much as possible because you never know. Well, the truth is you don't. And the Bible actually upholds that reality. You don't know. The Bible says you don't even know about tomorrow if it's going to be here for you. But trust God anyway. Even though you don't know what tomorrow holds, what the saying says, you know who holds tomorrow So trust God anyway. The Bible affirms the lack of knowledge that we have about the future, but it also affirms that we trust God regardless. In a similar teaching to the one that I just read that Jesus gave in Matthew 6, there's the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12, and it tells us there's a stark difference between biblical generosity, which is wise, and comfort and security, which is foolish. The parable of the rich fool appears in Luke 12. It's not going to be up on the screen. But this is where Jesus dispels the false belief that more possessions make us more secure. That's what we think, right? Well, if I just had this. Well, if I just had a little bit more. Well, if I just had that, I'd be good. I'd be, if I, you know what Rockefeller said? You know, how much is enough? Just a little bit more. One of the richest people that ever walked the planet. Well, how much is enough for you? Just a little bit more. That's how it is. It's insatiable. For us to long for something that will not satisfy and cannot provide security. He says, Luke 12, verse 13, if you have your Bible, you can read along with me or just listen. Then he said, this is what I'll do. This is this rich man. 
I will tear down my barns, because he already had barns that were full. And then he gets a whole lot more stuff. He's like, well, I don't know what to do with all this stuff. I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns, and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you've got plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. The man dies that night. Nobody ever gets to enjoy the things that he has prepared for himself and worked his whole life for and valued above everything else, much like Mr. Roman Bloom. It's all been for nothing and it's left to no one except for the state to decide who's going to get that money. Using barns as a symbol of abundance, Jesus challenges the need for building bigger storehouses when we already have enough. Jesus is against storing. He's not even against a storehouse. That's not the point. This man has it, and it's fine. It's just when he had more, what did he do? He wasn't generous with what he had. He tore down his storehouses, which was enough, and he built bigger ones. That's the problem. It's an indictment of hoarding versus radical generosity. Although the parable of the rich fool ends there, Jesus continues to teach the deeper meaning in this section of Scripture that's very similar to the one that I just mentioned in Matthew 6. And he warns us to not be anxious about food or clothing. If I take care of the birds of the air, if I take care of the lilies of the field, if I take care of the flowers, won't I take care of you, my children? And what he's saying in this is that we would trust him. Instead of worrying about tomorrow, he tells his disciples to invest in eternal purposes and let God take care of their provision of need as we plan for the future we just have to also plan and leave room for generosity if all we think about is storing up for greater security in our own minds and our own hearts without considering the needs of those around us and what God has called us to do and in investing in his kingdom then what Jesus is saying is we're nothing but rich fools this could be me there's not some amount of money out there that that says okay now you've moved over into the rich I know we have that idea but what God is saying it's about the heart and what you have and your resources and I can very quickly move from someone who is rich in what God has given me to being wise with what I've been given to being a rich fool it can happen really fast A rich man turns into a rich fool when he hoards excess wealth at the expense of biblical generosity. This truth that we trust God to provide has been the theme of the Bible from the beginning. Just like with Adam and Eve, do you trust me? Do you trust that what I have for you is good and that that's the one thing that's not good for you? Do you trust me or do you think I'm holding back from you? Do you trust me or do you think I've got some other kind of ulterior motive? Do you trust me, Noah? Do you trust me, Moses? Do you trust me, people of God? Do you trust me, Abraham, that I actually will provide an heir? Do you trust me, David, that I will provide a throne? On and on and on. Do you trust me to provide and to do what I said I was going to do? That's the issue. 
Which then begs the answer to the million dollar question again, that's the pun intended, do we trust God to be Jehovah Jireh like we just sang this past Friday night and we sing often on Sunday, thank you to Maverick City. Is he Jireh or is it just a good song? Is he our provider? Is he the one that provides everything that we need for our lives and to give him honor and glory? I can tell you this, that providing for us despite our lack of resources has never been a problem for God. I propose that it's a lack of trust than a lack of resources. Because God can help us to be generous even when we are, quote unquote, lacking in resource. Lacking of resource has never been a problem for God providing. That's why he can make water gush out of a rock. Well, what are we going to drink? I don't know. Where are you going to provide? God is the only one that can provide for you out of nothing or make something happen like water coming out of a rock to provide for you to drink, or quail falling down out of the sky. I was just reading that story the other day, and it was like the, the quail were flying so low. That's how it's kind of written. Like they're flying so low that they're just swatting at them, knocking them down. That's, it's like most of us have ever been quail hunting. They're up there a little bit, and they don't get really high, but we're shooting at them. These were like flying at them, like just idiotic birds coming. Here I am. Kill me and eat me. That's exactly what was happening. If God can do that and so much more, don't you think he can help you and that he's able to make you to be generous and provide for you at the same time? Yes, he can. Yes, he can. Ironically, our trust is not in the funds. Our trust is in the one who provides the funds. Isn't it interesting that we call trust fund a trust fund? Why? So that you can trust the fact that that money will be there for you later on and you don't have to worry. See, that is as fine as that is, and there's, again, nothing inherently evil or wrong with that at all. My trust isn't in that fund. My trust is in the one who gave the funds. So let me give you two reasons why I think we lack in generosity. I know this is where I battle, and I'm sure probably where you do, and there's plenty more reasons, but these were just the easiest, and I think the most simplest to comprehend, and then also apply differently. Number one, our lack of generous giving is not a lack of ability. It is a lack of trust in the one who gives the ability. This is what I just spoke of, right? If God is so trustworthy, then let's trust him to provide all we need to be generous in giving in this life. At whatever degree or level that means for us, it's not equal amounts, it's equal trust, it's equal sacrifice. 2 Corinthians 9 says God will supply this. Watch, he'll even give you the seed to plant. He'll even give you the seed to sow. Don't eat the seed, sow the seed. And if you will sow the seed, what's he saying? You will be enriched in every way so that you can have so much more and just chill and be secure and have a happy life. No, he says, so that you can be generous on every occasion. Why do I get more? So I can be more generous. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. It's not a lack of ability. It's a lack of trust in the one who gives us the ability. And number two, our lack of generous giving is not a lack of ability. It's a lack of obedience. 
in the one who gives us the ability. Obedience in, obedience to the one who gives us the ability to what? To make resources, to make wealth, as Scripture says, and then to trust God and to be generous. If God is able, we just sang that he was, and he is, then we are able by his grace to be generous. And if we're honest, most of us know what we're supposed to do. We know how to do it by God's grace. We know that God's wisdom is the one that helps us make the wise choice, and yet we still refuse to do it. I don't think it's a lack of knowledge. But here's the truth, and this is where it gets hard, I know. When we know what God has called us to do, when we've been taught what God's word says to do, and we refuse to do what God's word says to do, that's called disobedience, and disobedience to God is called sin. There's sin in our lives. And we can look at things like sexual immorality and adultery and murder and stealing or divorce. And we can look at all of those things and we see where there's disobedience to God in our actions in those areas. But in this case, we refuse to practice biblical generosity while saying all of that is wrong. But yet there is no difference when it comes to disobeying God, whether it's biblical generosity or something else that we think is so much worse. As a matter of fact, I think it's often that we live foolishly with our money and giving and act as if God is okay with it. Act as if it's just not that big of a deal. Remember earlier I said there are two economies we could operate in. There's two types of wealth that we can pursue. One is wise, the other is foolish. First, there is God's economy, and it can be a little upside down. It can make no sense mathematically. It can make no sense financially, necessarily in the practical, if you will. And then there's the kind of wealth that God's economy produces, which we just read in 2 Corinthians, enriches us in every way to be generous in every way. Then there's the other kind of economy and the other kind of wealth. And what the Bible says is the world's economy creates a wealth that will threaten to pierce us with many griefs. First Timothy, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. Also, this world's economy and this type of wealth threatens to steal our soul. Matthew says this, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Remember, it is wiser to give what we cannot keep, gaining what we cannot lose. If we don't learn how to give freely to be generous people who refresh others, as we read in Proverbs a moment ago, we will miss out on the joy of generosity. It should be a joy to be generous people. And if we don't learn how to lay up treasures in heaven, which is what Matthew 6 is saying, what Luke 12 teaches too, then we're inevitably going to settle for laying up and storing up treasures on earth and putting our hope in those things and trying to find joy in those fleeting things as well. Going back to Matthew 6, Jesus is saying investing in heaven does not mean forfeiting present happiness doesn't mean, well, I guess I'm just going to be happy. I'm just going to give away stuff all the time. No, it means that we are relocating and deepening our happiness. I'm relocating my happiness now, and I'm deepening my happiness in eternity. 
I'm not putting my hope in everything that I have now. I'm relocating it and deepening the joy of my salvation and what I get to experience with Christ in heaven forever. Or as Luke 12 tells us, that we're going to be blessed to be generous, not to build bigger barns or bigger savings accounts. We're blessed to be generous. God's economy and wealth will involve sacrifice to be generous. And wisdom says the sacrifice now is worth it in eternity. It's wiser to give what we cannot keep, gaining what we cannot lose. And what we give, what we keep is all we have. And what we give, God can multiply. This is the blessing of God now. This is the blessing of sacrifice now. To sacrifice for the sake of Jesus, our Savior. To sacrifice for the sake of the gospel going forth in and through our community and in the world. That's the joy that we have in living this type of generous life. Somehow we've misinterpreted the fact that sacrifice means loss and sorrow all the time. I guess I've got to sacrifice again. Sacrifice my time sacrifice my money. I don't know why I'm kicking things, but that's what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm just going to sacrifice. It's just such a sacrifice. <laughs> but every time I read about sacrifice in the Word of God, there's a corresponding joy with it. It's not an awful thing. Matter of fact, David, when he was sacrificing a, a, an offering to God in worship, he's like, I'm not going to give to God something that costs me nothing. I can't wait to give him something that's valuable to me to tell him that he's more valuable to me. That's the type of sacrifice that the Apostle Paul talks about in Acts when he says, Jesus says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When we lay up treasures in heaven, we are not hedging for the future we're actually seizing blessing now and in the future because the happiest people in the world are not those who spend and buy for themselves incessantly. And I think we know that from what we see in popular culture. And I think we know that from our own experience. Like I got that thing and that it was good, but it's in the attic now. Man, that Nintendo was awesome. Man, that Wii was great. I got tennis elbow, I played it so much back in the, whenever it was. It's in a bag in the garage now, whatever. We put so much hope in these things and we know by experience they won't satisfy. It's like, it's like cotton candy, isn't it? Like, I love cotton candy. I, my, my favorite ice creams is cotton candy explosion. I know it's like a 12 year old, but I like it, all right? But, you know, you eat cotton candy, you go to the fair or wherever, and you get cotton candy, it's like, you're just eating it, eating it. You could, if, it if it was rolled, like, all the way around, like, had an eight-foot diameter, you probably could eat it all because it just doesn't fill you up. Now, you might be really excited when you're done, and you might be really sick a little bit later on, but you could eat a ton of it. It's just like air, and that's what earthly wealth. It's like cotton candy. I could get a lot of it. Isn't that exciting? And enjoy it. It tastes good for a minute. But it just doesn't satisfy. It's not filling. 
The Bible tells us again, and maybe you know this from experience, the happiest people are those who generously spend and give to God through their lives to his church and for the good of others. But be warned, wisely choosing biblical generosity in this way will make us seem foolish in a world of consumerism, excess, and even extreme stashing and saving. What are you doing? Why do you give so much time and money to the church and to this Christianity? Why? And what we find is it's going to be confusing when we're radically generous. And it's likely to offend those who are clinging desperately to what they have right now here on earth that they can't keep. Back to Matthew 6, our treasure is whatever we earn or acquire for ourselves with what we have been given by God. What do we spend our money on? What do we spend our time on? What do we spend our energy on to have and to accumulate? That is our treasure. So first thing is, question to ask is, what has God given you? And it's a rhetorical question, and the answer is, he's given you everything you have. He's given you the breath to breathe, the breath that you're taking in, the breath that you will breathe throughout the rest of the afternoon or how long you live have been given to you by God, measured out to you by God. Every dollar in your paycheck comes from him. Every square inch of your house comes from him. Every car that you drive, job that you have, it comes from him. What do you have that you have right now that God has not given to you? And I've spoken with lots of people over the years about money and issues with money. I've spoken to a lot of people who have worked really hard, and that, that's probably many of you to get to where you are. And maybe you came from nothing, and, and your, your parents and their parents had nothing, but you were able to do this, and you've made something of yourself. I, I have family members like that, right, that, that had nothing, and yet they made something of themselves. And that's great, and that's good, and I'm glad. And there's a lot about good work ethic in the Bible and in Proverbs. But here's the problem. If at any point you think it's 50% God and 50% you, you've messed up up it's not even 90 percent God and 10 percent you everything that we have in this life has been given to us even the grace to do whatever it is that we do it's a gift from God God is gracious and all of us especially in the west have been given much the question is is what will our much have purchased in the end what will our much say about what we really treasured and pursued what will our much suggest that we live for here while we were on earth did we live for heaven store up treasure in heaven or did we store up treasure on earth that we secretly hoped that we could enjoy earth for just a little bit longer and that heaven could wait because that's what mattered more to me what does it mean to lay up treasure in heaven maybe that's the the question that we're asking ourselves as we look at the, well what does it mean to lay up treasure in heaven i don't get it it means to give all that we can on this earth for the good of others and in the name of Jesus. It means that we are to live as if what Jesus said is true, that it's more blessed to give than it is to receive, that we cannot begin to lay up treasures in heaven until we're willing to sacrifice our treasures on earth, particularly for those in need. It means responding to the poor in a way that is empathetic. As Jesus said, the poor are always going to be with you. Remember them, Paul said in Galatians. So who are the poor and where are we able to, with what God's given us, able to help them in their time of great need? And beyond the poor, which we're never to forget and never to overlook, we lay up treasures in a wide variety of generosities. What does it look like in the body of Christ that we are 
kind to others and the needs that they have around us. That we open up our homes in hospitality that we cover a bill in a crisis, that we provide meals after a surgery or a hospital visit, that we surprise somebody with a thoughtful gift or, or a gift card, that we support the spread of the gospel first through our own local churches and then out beyond that, even into the world and the missions. There is no better investment for our dollar than the kingdom of God reaching the people around us with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's investing into the kingdom of God as the church has always been doing and it's a wise investment with eternal gain what are the gains on this they're eternal you'll never lose them this is biblical generosity and it's so much more than make sure you cover yourself and your bases and then see what you got left over to be generous nope it's more than that Instead, Jesus is saying, if you want to be wise, lay up treasures in heaven. Chase this treasure. If you want to chase after something, chase the treasure in heaven. If you want to save for something, save for that type of treasure in heaven. Lay up for those treasures in heaven. Do whatever you can to have this treasure. Not leftover generosity, but wise generosity. The kind that only makes sense if Jesus really died and really rose and really is your Savior and Lord. And all of what we say about him is really true. Don't simply include heaven in your budget, but aim the entirety of your budget at heaven. Let's close with just a brief recap of two other men that we can juxtapose, like Mr. Roman Bloom and Jim Elliott. Two other men in the Bible, both found in the book of Luke, because there is such a theology of giving in the book of Luke. But one was a rich little guy named Zacchaeus, the kingpin of the Jericho tax cartel. And when he met Jesus, everything changed. Not only his heart, but also his hands. And remember, we talked about wisdom last week. It's not just what goes on on the inside. It's what happens on the outside. Don't just tell me that you're wise. Show me that you're wise. Don't just tell me that you're a Christian. Show me that you're a Christian. Just don't tell me you have faith. Show me you have faith. That's what wisdom is. It's an outward expression of righteousness. But when he met Jesus, everything changed inside and out, and the same fingers that once reached into the pockets of his friends and his neighbors and extorted from them for his own personal gain, now extended with generosity to the poor, even to the point of paying back fourfold everybody that he defrauded. Why? Because generosity says, I'm not gonna do the bare minimum. I'm gonna actually reconcile and make restitution and go above and beyond even what the law requires. Because that's what Jesus did for us. He goes above and beyond. And only a few verses earlier in Luke's gospel, Jesus encounters another wealthy man who we call the rich young ruler. And his great possessions were a barrier to him following Jesus. There was this great difference on how these guys handled their money. One was wise, the other foolish. One gave what he could not keep to gain what he could not lose. The other did not. One did not keep his money and allowed God to multiply his joy. The other kept his money and that's all he got. And he walked away sad. He wasn't happy. He was rich. But he wasn't happy. Scripture said he was sad because he kept what he could not keep. 
and he lost what only he could have gained in Christ. It's wiser to give what we cannot keep, gaining what we cannot lose. And what you keep is all you have, but what you give, God can multiply. How we handle our money has everything to do with how we view Jesus. In this case, is he the treasure of your life or is your treasure the treasure of your life? Whether Jesus or money is Lord of our hearts, whether we trust Jesus or the accumulation of our funds for security and provision. And the rich young ruler chose his wealth over Jesus. But for Zacchaeus, meeting the Messiah broke the death grip that he had on his material possessions. And it also broke the death grip his material possessions had on him and his heart. Here's what Luke teaches us. Here's what Jesus teaches us. Here's what Paul reiterates. Generosity is a sign of a renewed heart and soul. Basically what I want to say to us church is there is no such thing as a stingy Christian. There's no such thing as a Christian miser. We can't be stingy and generous at the same time. That's irreconcilable differences. They don't go together. And what Christ has saved us to do and he's changed us to do, he's reoriented our passions in in the way that we view the future and the way that we view the present so that we would choose the wisdom of generosity over the foolishness of earthly gain, which we cannot keep. And what's going to happen is that we are to be open-handed trusters instead of closed-fisted worriers. I'm going to open-handedly trust you, God. Instead of holding on tight to the things that I cannot keep and worrying about what's going to happen tomorrow. No, don't do that, Jesus said. That's no way to live. Truly knowing Christ means that you will be a generous person. The gospel would open up your heart, your soul, and with it it will open up your hands and your grip on your finances and your money and any resource you've been given. You hear us talk about, and Robert did a good job already. He preached my message before I ever got up here. But as a preacher, I had to continue just to talk. You hear us talk about tithing. You hear us talk about giving. You hear us talk about the one campaign. What's the one campaign? It's just an opportunity for us to think of something creative to say, hey, please don't be foolish. That's, what's the one campaign? Well, Because we need this. Yeah, there's lots of needs that we have as a church. We've got a brand new building. We've got lots of needs. There's a lot of needs within our community that we're trying to meet. There's a lot of needs that God has had us meeting throughout the world and in our community. Yeah, there's needs. But the whole idea about that is so much more than meeting the need that we have. And it's saying, please don't be foolish. Please make a wise choice and invest in the kingdom of God. Be a generous person. Why? Because that's what Christ saved us to be. If you look at the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, because oftentimes we think about the tithe, and, and it's so much more than the tithe. Like the tithe, you can, be, you can give 10% and be stingy because your heart's not right. And you can give more than that and be stingy. It doesn't matter. Matter of fact, the Old Covenant, if you look at it, they say that you, you could have been given away anywhere from 20% to 37% of your income and your resources to the temple and to worship God. Tithe really is just a starting point, and then grace takes us so far beyond that that we would do so out of a love for Jesus, not being legalistic or detached and just doing something by rote, but instead giving by grace in faith and doing so generously and joyfully and cheerfully, as the Scripture says. 
The greater issue, as we always say, is not equal giving, it's equal sacrifice. What are we sacrificing in order to be generous? And it will take sacrifice in order to be generous. Christians ought to give in such a way that there are things that we forego in order to be generous. And it doesn't mean those things are bad. Hear me. I'm joking afterwards about what I'm going to say. It's like somebody's wearing something. It's like, not talking about you, not talking about that. Of course, if you want to share it with me, we could be more biblical. I'll wear that shirt next week, right? But there are things that I want, right? There's, and there's nothing inherently wrong with them. It's, it's nothing inherently wrong with a storehouse. It's where's my heart and what am I doing with the extra and the stuff that God has given me? Because if we're going to be generous, there's going to be sacrifice. So what do I give up? Maybe I give up, you know, there's a new shoe drop that's coming out. I love shoes. I, I, I like them. And I like to buy them. Not nearly as much as other people because I'm also still tight. Maybe it's that, man, I waited 25 years and there's some nice jerseys and hats that I want to wear right now for my team that won the World Series this year. Most of them were sold out, so that answered my question whether I could get them or not. There's a, there's a vacation I'd like to take Carla on. I mean, shoot, we're going to be married 25 years coming up really soon. And man, there's some places I'd like to go, some things I'd like to do. And there's nothing wrong with that. And, and some of these things I will do. But the point being is, where is my heart? And what do I need to lay down in my life for the sake of the gospel in order to be generous in every way? Because it's not just about my money. Here's really what we should be laying down. The Bible says we should be laying down the entirety of our lives, laying down our lives for the sake of the gospel which obviously includes our money the greatest motivation for all of this is that we choose generosity as a Christian because God loves a cheerful giver and because God gave his first and his best in Jesus Christ his son the scripture says that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8 9. In Hebrews it says for the joy set before him, he scorned the shame of everybody looking at him like he was a lowly criminal. He scorned that shame so that we could be made rich in every way, receiving from our heavenly Father. And not just so that we could be made rich, but so that we could be generous with our lives as God was generous with us in his son Jesus Christ here's the evidence of you truly being a Christian or not not only is generosity one of the great evidences of being wise but it's also a great evidence of truly being a Christian generosity is a sign of a renewed heart and a renewed soul the gospel going deeper into our souls loosens our grip on our money and our money's grip on us. See, a lot of times you say, well, man, I'm not sure about this message. This is a gospel message. Oh, it is. Wait, why, Pastor, why don't you just preach the gospel? Oh, I am. You know how many times I've heard that over the last two years? About things that I've preached. Well, we just got to get back to preaching the gospel. Now, what you're saying is you want me to preach the portion of the gospel that you've already accepted and obeyed. But the part of the gospel that begins to infiltrate your heart and the hardness of areas that you've tried to push over to the side is what you don't want to hear. None of us do, but it's what we need to hear. Yes, there's the gospel unto salvation, but there's the gospel unto be more like Christ in every way, every single day. 
And this speaks to that. Are we going to be wise, generous people reflecting the heart of our Father and our Savior? Or are we going to be foolish and stingy? Because it's wiser to give what we cannot keep, gaining what we cannot lose. And what you keep is all you have. But what you give, God will multiply. Let's pray. You have been listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We hope God met you right where you're at today. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you're listening from and visit infocuschurch.org for more on all that's going on in the life of our church.